Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about how we're covering ambisonic, how we're covering events with ambisonic and specifically handheld mics. Now, this may seem like a, an odd thing to talk about for a second hour, but I really think, especially for small productions, we're starting to find a way uh, to do this in a relatively small way um, that really adds a lot to the experience. Uh, you see 5.1 with crowds and everything else in very large productions, but you don't see it with someone walking around with a live view. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that pipeline of how we're doing this at events and how we get that out and process it to hopefully help you a little bit uh, with understanding that. And we're going to keep on talking about it. But when you see us using it in upcoming events, the next time we'll probably do it as NAB, uh, you can start to get your head around how that works and how you might be able to use it. So uh, Mickey Makachor is going to join me and I'm, we'll talk through the uh, pipeline uh, in the second hour. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, jump into the, into the, uh, into the questions. Our first one this morning comes from Sion Pasin in uh, Manukau, Auckland, New Zealand, and it uh, is as follows. Our disability support organization hosts a community forum, and we're interested in the Mukana question software. Is this available for purchase or subscription? Yeah, what you should do is uh, ping me. You can you probably go to either. You can contact us. I'm trying to think of the best way to do that. If you're in our Discord, it's easy because you just ping me in Discord. Um, if not... Uh, go ahead and put it through the 090. And we, I don't have a lot of good ways for people to contact us because usually people who do beta right now know me. <laughs> so um, so it's a really good question. Uh, if you don't, go ahead and put the question in again tomorrow. Uh, but join our Discord that goes out on the email every day. Um, or you can um, uh, you can ping us through either the office hours info or 090.media, 090.media info and ask for it. Um, we are doing beta testing right now and uh, we are using it commercially in some cases as well. Most of our beta testing is all with uh, nonprofits and specific verticals, um, but uh, it's definitely available and it's working pretty well. So um, uh, go ahead and reach out to us in one of those ways and we'll have better ways in the future. We're just getting starting to ramp it up. Uh, next question. Next question comes from our old friend John Proto in Las Vegas. I have GPT-5 like a summary of Dreamforce's opening day yesterday, but I'm not seeing John. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I don't know why you can't see me, Bill. Uh, oh, there you are. Sorry. So, so Dreamforce it started exactly the same time as Apple yesterday. So the keynote was from, from 10 to noon. And uh, Benioff came on and he said, your data is not our product. That's not what we do here. He asserts unlike a lot of other companies. And he says, transparency builds trust. We all know what can happen when AI goes wrong. So everything they talked about yesterday was AI. AI integrated everywhere within Salesforce and Slack, a bunch of new features in Slack and a half a billion dollar fund for startups as well. So that, those were the big highlights from Dreamforce yesterday. How was his presentation? I didn't see the video. I just got the highlights from several different news sources. Oh, God. I can't find it. You can't, I can't find the video. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Usually he's a pretty good presenter. Like he, he really spends more time than almost all the other CEOs um, really figuring that out. And he went from not being a great presenter <laughs> to being a really good one over a couple of years, about a decade ago. So um, anyway, it's, it's always interesting. Um, I, it's not a pro product that I, um, use very much. And so it's not a thing I track very much, but, but when you actually see him talk about stuff, his ability to present, that's what you wish every CEO could do. Um, next question. 
uh, Ocean Plascasier in um, at the Otaquachi looks like River District uh, says love 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 feather the topic of yesterday's second hour how do I print out the pictures I make by feather on my new Creality 3D printer in the way that Jeffrey and Courtney do so students can stay in person with the things we draw go ahead Courtney can play in person uh it might be i think they did say that they can export an obj file i think out of feather then you could uh, take that obj file maybe import it into uh uh insta 360 or tinkercad or something that's more designed for creating uh watertight meshes for 3d printing and that's one of the problems is um a lot of those 3D creation programs aren't really designed for 3D printing. They don't create uh, solids that are waterproof or solid, you know, completely solid, don't have any holes in the mesh where the mesh is joined. Uh, because if you have those holes or, or mesh joining issues, uh, they create errors when 3D printing, when trying to export that model to an STL file, which is what the 3D printers or slicers use to slice up and create your 3D model. So. You could probably take that OBJ file, load it into Tinkercad or Insta or uh, 360. Uh, not Insta 360, uh, three, uh, Fusion 360, and uh, or Blender, and then export it as an STL file, and then from there you can print it out and play with it, probably. Yeah, and I think the at least the one that I the printer that I use, I could probably import a OBJ almost directly. I think I can it'll import OBJs directly and allow you to just um, slice them. So it, it converts it kind of in the process to STL. Um, next question. Ivan Gorgovich in San Diego, California. Is the T5 still the standard hard drive for recording media from a camera or has another drive succeeded it? Go ahead, Jesse. It is not the standard because it's not being manufactured anymore. However, the air apparent has not revealed itself yet. The camera ops I work with have been experimenting with all kinds of different SSDs and uh, nobody has settled on the one correct solution. We use T7s. They've functioned for our needs so far most of the time. Yeah, most of the time is the problem with the T7s. Um, you know, so the T7s have a different caching system, which has been proven to be really difficult to be. Uh, it's a little unstable with Blackmagic cameras at higher bit rates. So, um, so that's why we've been avoiding those. I, I'm still using T5s a lot, but also I build my own from NVMEs. You can buy the cases, buy the NVMEs or, S or SSDs and um, the M2s and put them together yourself. And that's what I use probably more than anything else. Go ahead, Mickey. Uh, with... Majority of the circles and productions that, that I work on, <clears throat> the standard for recording media would be the native uh, media that the that the camera takes, which is nowadays typically CFAS or CF, CF Express. Um, uh, at a certain level, uh, some people wouldn't trust a, a storage media that's connected by, via a cable that has a non-locking connector, such as USB-C. Um, so... I would recommend investing in uh, in media that is a bit more secure than a hard drive that is or a, an SSD that is externally mounted. Yeah, and I think that the, the place where I use the, I mean, I definitely have some CFast uh, tools and some of the different cameras have a variety of different internal recording. And I agree with Mickey, uh, if I'm doing a, a really like a film shoot and we absolutely need to make sure that every take is captured, uh, the CFast is the best way, especially when it's a shorter form. I think the things we get into trouble with is longer form content that needs to be recorded that just, you know, buying a CFast becomes price prohibitive for, you know, many cameras um, and the speed at which we can take them off. You know, so pulling all the CFast is different than 
pulling off the drive or attaching it. But I think that, um, so if you're, but we use the, again, we're still using a lot of the T5s and building our own for the externals. Um, and uh, the, but the other side of that is definitely the CFAST. And I agree. Next question. Next one comes from Malton Christensen in New York City. Fascinating AI demo he has linked here, both impressive and alarming. The post link lacks details on how it was created. Is it for real? And it could have significant implications, Alton notes, for the media industry if it's genuine. Go ahead, John. Yeah, if, it, if this particular one isn't real, we're very, very close. Uh, chat, all of the large language models do great on on uh, translation, ChatGPT speaks 20 different languages. And then DID is probably the best out of Israel for facial animation. They can they can match those lips perfectly. So yes, AI is taking over the world. Get prepared. Good, Jeff. Go ahead, Jeff. And that's all I would add is, is um, if this is in fact real, I mean, first of all, to be clear, uh, I didn't see any mention of anything happening live. So in other words, you upload your original recording and then it, it sound, looks like the guy that posted this, it took about 10 minutes or so to get back each version. And, and exactly to John's point, each of the individual things that's happening is absolutely already being done by several companies. You know, we've got the the eye contact matching, you know, where if you're not looking at the camera, we can change your eyes to make it look like you're looking. We can certainly do the language translation and generate the speech. The the lip movement, I mean, that's, you know, I need to see someone else or try it myself because the lip movement sure looks precise. And not only that, but the facial and jaw movement that that goes along with it all seems to be perfectly aligned with each language version. So uh, I'm skeptical, but again, it's all doable and certainly plausible. It's all doable. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if that software is publicly available, but I can tell you that that's already been built, um, you know, for a little while now. Um, and so they're rolling it out slowly. We're seeing it um, in the back end. We're seeing it pop up here and there for they're using it for fixes. So someone, especially moving, uh, ratcheting down a, a, a rating for a film for a film from R to, G, to PG or PG-13 and taking out the swear words and replacing them. We used to just kind of dub over those and now they're they're re remapping the, the mouth for that. Um, they, you know, and so those are the kind of things that are happening and they're happening, uh, starting to, the, the rate is increasing as far as that goes. And I think that it is, we just have to really realize we're entering an age where you're not going to be able to truly believe anything that you see. You shouldn't use video or stills to say, well, I saw it. Um, that's not going to really mean a lot. And so you have to see it from uh, multiple sources that don't generally agree with each other. Like that's the, that's that, you know, you're going to have, it's, it's an adversarial um, information model, which is that you have to know both sides agree that it happened. Um, and if they don't, you, you're going to have to start thinking about whether it's believable or not. Go ahead, Chris. I used to edit airplane versions of movies. It was a horribly unsatisfying job. <laughs> Next question. Ivan Gorgovich in San Diego again. Uh, iPhone 15 Pro Max. What hard drive will you use to record log files to? Go ahead, Jeffrey. So there's still a lot of information we don't know about the USB-C and what it can do, what can't do. It's 10 gigabytes for the Max models. 
the first iPhone is still going to be USB 2.0, by the way. Uh, so keep that in mind. And uh, so, but uh, pretty much any type of hard drive that can support that is going to be uh, is going to be part of that. And of course, what works best? I'm you know we use an ATEM Mini, and certain drives work, certain drives don't. So it's there's going to be a lot of testing that's going to happen in the next uh, couple months. So we'll find out then. Good, Bill. My presumption is going to be one of the best will be the NVMe drives that you can uh, easily get from many companies that have a USB-C connector, Thunderbolt, if it's provisioned like that, and are very fast. Um, and the good thing is that you can upgrade your memory on them as things get bigger. This is going to be exciting. We'll be able to shoot longer form stuff on phones and things. Sorry, uh, Chris. I, I was trying to go in now. Um, I believe the Max, Jeffrey, will not be USB 2. I think it's USB 3 or better. And I just imagine, like, are we going to have, like, daily driver phone cages that have a little slot for your T5 drive on the back? 100%. <laughs> go ahead, That's, Courtney. I haven't tried it yet, but these, these Lexar, are, they only come in one terabyte so far, I think. They're in VMEs, and they're blazingly fast. Uh I think they're, well, they're at least five mega, megabytes per second uh, transfer rate. And I've tested them at 2200 for recording. So they do work very fast. They're fairly low current too, and tiny, tiny small. If they get rid of this carabiner thing, it'd be a lot even smaller. Yeah, the, uh, the, a lot of us have now. I, for my phones, I have the, the small rig. I just get it now with the, the camera, which is the small rig, basically camera, rig, um, camera frame that has all the mounts on the outside. And so once you have that, then putting the, you can just get the drive mount for it. And it, it's, uh, I think it's going to be really useful. Next question. Next question comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Any thoughts on what Logitech just released and unabashedly calls the most flexible show-and-tell camera? Two-in-one full HD webcam and overhead camera for creators, gamers, educators, and professionals. And then there's a link. Jesse? Boy, howdy, does this look cheaply built. The way the, the device starts and stops on a dime, it looks very jerky. Uh, I would go with a road boom arm before I put this on my desk. I go ahead, Jeffrey. It's going to be perfect for anybody that's getting into doing stuff like this. Doesn't need to have the production value. The camera itself is 1080p and uh, 2.0 in its f-stop. So I think it's like a... Bunch 37 3.7 millimeter lens i believe if i read that correct so it's a standard logitech uh webcam that's going to be on a stick so if if you don't need that high-end quality then it's going to be perfect for you jeff yeah and i think most of their product line you know really is targeting the relatively basic uh individual youtuber um or teacher or someone that has for a long time had lots of things on a table that they want to show lots of videos about crafts or anything and you know people have done a variety of rigs to try and get some kind of camera so i, I think this is great for those folks I don't, I don't i didn't see a price but assuming it's a in kind with other webcams and things like that, I, I think it's a, a great product for those folks. It it just gives them exactly what they need. They don't need a whole frame around their entire room. Good, Bill. As soon as I saw that, I said goodbye to overhead projector in classrooms. If it's inexpensive enough for uh, cash-strapped elementary schools, there may be a lot of those out here. Yeah, I think it, it 
it for companies who are or individuals, YouTubers, et cetera, there's a lot of things that they're, that they're not ready to do high end. Um, and this is reproducing something that we've, you know, these kind of art um, or artboard cameras are something you can see bigger, much bigger versions of this on Amazon or B&H and many other places um, that, that give you a lot of control. You can put big cameras on it and move them around. Uh, I think that for a small desktop, you know, I want to do exactly what's been said before. I think it works great. And probably for a lot of us, we'd want a, little, a couple more tools. It looks like it's using the Logie, you know, the, the little um, webcam that they had and then just simply adding arms and, and stuff to it. But I, I could definitely see how a teacher, someone doing quick live streams to Instagram or to YouTube or others would, would find this super useful. Next question. Jesse Kester in Glendale, California. Blackmagic has streamed has a stream tomorrow morning. Any predictions or wish list items? John? So they, they actually tell us cameras, post-production, broadcast. Camera, I think they're going to come out with an 8K boxy type camera to compete with the Sony Burrito. Oh, Burano, sorry. Uh, post-production is going to be probably some new DaVinci, maybe 19. And broadcast is going to be an 8K switcher with 2110 built in. Go ahead, Courtney. I wish they'd come out with a uh, ATEM Mini that has USB camera host uh, inputs on it. That would be really cool. They took over my page. Uh, go ahead, Jesse. Uh, a little more room for growth between HDMI and SDI would be nice in their camera line. Mitchell? Fix the UVC conflict on USB so we don't get the uh, ATEM gray. And it does look like the Burano is quite something to um, look at. I think I'm just, I'm just looking at Petapixel right now. 8.6K full-frame sensor. Um, so that's uh, with 16 stops of dynamic uh, range. Let's, let's see the, um, yeah, it's, it's a little boxy camera with a big sensor. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's, it's, um, $25,000, uh, starting to ship on September. Uh, it's pre-order for September, uh, 13th, which is today. And the camera is expected to ship spring of 2024. But does it have USB out so you can use it as a webcam? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I, yeah. it'll be interesting to see. I think that for Blackmagic, I think we're going to see a lot. The cameras are probably, I, I don't think that there's going to be a camera released without uh, an Ethernet cable from now on. So I think that that's the thing that we'll probably watch for. Uh, they'll probably start adding that to everything. Next question. Tommy Schantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. Do you folks run static IPs on your setup or just use DHCP reservations on your setups? And if both, when do you run static and why? Good, Mitchell. Just a good idea to always have static. It just means you planned your network and uh, you're also planning for conflicts down the road if you're doing DHCP. Um, even if you have routing tables, there's going to be a problem where you're going to be bumping into something or something will mysteriously shut down. So play it safe. Static is the best way to go. Go ahead, Mickey. Uh, I build my networks with uh, DHCP enabled on the uh, clients. Um, but I do, uh, as Tommy mentioned, set uh, reserved IP addresses so that as hardware moves from uh, one location to another, uh, like between um, um my network, my studio, or another studio, they're able to grab uh, a uh, an IP address that I know and am expecting that the uh, hardware to be in. And if ever the DHCP server does go out, they are able to assign themselves an IP address um, in the 192.256, uh, sorry, um, 168.256 uh, subnet. 
Yeah, we 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 also do the same thing with Meraki's. Uh, so what we do is we it's all attached to the MAC addresses um, that that are, that are there that are connected to those machines. Um, every Meraki will have it in the kits that we built in the past in Pixel Core. It, you know, if you put any given machine in, the, the Meraki would know what to, to give it to via DHCP. So all the clients are set, were set DHCP. I, I will say that you have to know what you're doing if you're doing what Mickey and I are talking about. But we would we would uh, schedule all of those so that if you just dropped an encoder in, it was always the same uh, in the site. You know, it was the all, always the same host address, but the network address would change based on the location that it was at. Um, and so that way, um, you just tell me what kit you're in, and I knew exactly how to get to the encoder, the switcher, the mixer, whatever we needed to do to make that happen without a lot of, you just, I didn't need to know any, you didn't have to tell me any IPs. Now, oftentimes we had what that number is, oftentimes, you know, just the end of that, that host number printed somewhere on the front of the, <laughs> on, of the, of the, of the box so that we just knew what it needed to be. Um, you do have to be very careful if you're going to mix and match static and DHCP because that's when they really start running over each other. So um, when we built the, the 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 DHCPs, we would leave a gap open of um, addresses that could be used by static. So if we don't, if we're adding something, we knew that we could add it into that um, at maybe 50 addresses that we could add in there that uh, we know is safe. The DHCP is not trying to use it, so we would keep it outside of that. I go, ahead, John. Exactly right. On a slash 24 network, my first 100 are static and, and then the remainder 150, 140-ish are, are DHCPs. And when we say slash, uh, slash 128, that's a 255, 255, 128. Um, that, that means that half of that, that's, that third octet is being d- delivered back to, um, uh, to, your, to your address, to the local addresses, to the host addresses. Next question. Jacques Lemontreau in New Orleans, Louisiana, says still looking to find what's the best speaker and amp setup with balanced wiring for playing guitar and bass on stage. Doesn't need a powered PA, just wants a combo to play on stage that's balanced. The recommended Fractal XFX3 can't drive a cabinet by itself. Good, Jeffrey. Yeah, that is uh, definitely true. So I actually talked to uh, talked to my bandmates about this, and the one thing that uh, that kept coming up was the uh, Fender Bassman, uh, as an all around. But if you're going to switch from guitar to bass, you're definitely going to need something like a Fractal in between, so you can make those uh, simple uh, changes with one uh, switch, so you can make it sound good. You could play a bass in a guitar amp; it's not a problem, but there are going to be frequencies that are out from there. Uh, otherwise, there's a lot of different hybrids. Uh, bl- uh, Black Feather makes one, uh, Orange makes one, Ampeg makes them, and all of those uh, heads are really good uh, to have. And then, of course, you can then mix and match on your speakers to what your sound is and how much you need. If you need a small speaker, if you need a large speaker. Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, I'm not the 100% sure on what the uh Jacques means about the uh, balanced wiring but uh one thing i would say is that different uh amps and cabinet combos have uh very distinct uh sounds to them like a, a marshall sounds different from a vox different to a marshall uh i don't know what i'm not a guitar person but well twin reverb or whatever they call it that also sounds different from an orange uh combo um i would suggest um it seems like you're in north of Los Angeles. I don't know if there's like a guitar center near, nearby. Um, if you want to drop by and test a bunch of their their amps there and their cabinets and see which one fits for the specific sound that you're going for, because they all sound different. Um, also, perhaps in YouTube, check out uh, channels like uh, Rig Rundown and also uh, Sweetwater has a lot of uh, amp-related content as well. So 
um, pick one. I think only you can decide for for yourself um, which uh, amp combo would work for you. Good, Chris. From my Pacific Rim friend, NOLA means uh, New Orleans. Um, I would try the uh, the Pod 6 um, guitar amp gizmo. You get great sounds out of it. it I believe it. I believe the rack one has balanced out. You can hook it up to any cabinet you want, and you can get lineouts to the front of house mix. Next I've used question. it quite successfully. Oh, and a quick reminder, by the way, that you, of course you can ask questions throughout the first hour. We're going to talk about our specifically, not general ambisonic, but specifically our ambisonic pipeline within that we're using. I'm sorry, for events. Um, and uh, we'll be talking about that in the second hour. So if you've got questions about that, go ahead and throw those in. But of course, you can ask general questions in the first hour and you can use this little QR code or just the URL askofficehours.com to throw your questions in. You won't have to log in. You also don't get to vote and chat and all these other things that, that you might want to do, but you do get to just ask the question really quickly. So go ahead and throw it in there. Uh, make sure to vote on the questions. We've got a lot of questions this morning, so make sure to vote on those questions and we'll get to them as fast as we can. Next question. Jesse Kester in Glendale, California again. Unity client logs out when I switch the computer from Wi-Fi to Ethernet. My other always-on web apps remain logged in. What makes Unity so special? Go ahead, Mickey. So, yeah, um, I think uh, I, I would consider it a, a warning uh, that if you've been logged out, that something has gone wrong. Um, if, say, you have Ethernet as top priority in your, if you're in a Macintosh, you can set the priorities of your different network connections. And say if Ethernet is your priority and for some reason it fails over to Wi-Fi, um, Unity logging out would be a good sign for me. Like a lot of people um, take advantage of the fact that a lot of the ATEM switchers have uh, Teranex converters on their inputs. Um, I, for one, do not like that because I want to know if I'm sending the switcher the incorrect signal. Um, I think of it that way uh, with Unity. If it logs out, I don't want it to connect out automatically um, because I want to know if something has gone wrong with my network. Saying that, though, within uh, Unity Intercom settings, there is a selection call called Continuous Login, which will repeatedly uh, try to re-log re in the client if uh, the internet connection goes away. Oh, Jeff? And I'm not sure, by the way, I mean, unless you have the client up on your screen that you would know it's logged out or that there's a problem, right? You're assuming you're connected, you're not looking at it, and I'm not sure that you would know. But I've found the, the desktop version uh, way more temperamental than the mobile app. So um, what I did for a long time is actually ran the app on my iPhone and then just routed the audio in to my computer's audio, so I was still getting it um, in my headphones and not going out. And I found it to be a little bit uh, more forgiving with problems than the desktop version. Yeah, I, my biggest complaint with Unity is actually that it logs you out and it doesn't warn you. Like, you know, we have a lot of people that get logged out, they just aren't, aren't responding, and then we find out that we get used to texting people if we ping them on Unity and they don't. It, it's not very good at warning us. It's supposed to have some little beep, but it doesn't work 90% of the time. Next question. Matt Halverson in Brookings, South Dakota says, when I put a 29.97 frames per second clip on a 23.97 frames per second timeline in Premiere, should I be changing the frame rate manually by going to modify clip assume this frame rate or does Premiere do a good job with the automatic conversion? Go Jesse. 
Compared to Resolve, Premiere does a good job with the automatic conversion. That said, if you are shooting um, a B-roll, if there's no audio that you're using from the footage, I would go ahead and convert the footage to 2397. If you have people talking, if there's sync sound, you should leave it at 2997 because a 20% change in uh, clip speed will absolutely be noticeable in their voices. Good. Mitchell? Yeah, that's that's true. And Matt, you're probably referring to 2398 uh, to hit that 24 number. Um, as a matter of practice, I generally, at best practice, I generally right-click modify uh, to have it match. But Premiere does do a pretty good job of doing it best it can to uh, to match up with it. The only time I run into real problems uh, with Premiere is if you try to drop a 44-1 audio clip onto a uh, timeline, it really doesn't like it. It starts doing weird things. So uh, best to stick with 48 on audio. Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, say if it's just a single clip that uh, that has to be, say, a 29.976 clip uh, being brought into a 23.98 timeline. I'd first run that through compressor or Adobe Media Encoder and uh, transcode that clip prior to in bring that, um, that clip into the NLE. Um, that way... Even before bringing it in, I can already take a look. Will frame blending work well with this? Will optical flow be necessary for the type of um, uh, motion that's in that video? Um, but yeah, I, I would get everything conform to a to the base uh, to the time base before bringing it in. If it's only one clip. Go ahead, Chris. I will concur that as an editor, I like slowing down B-roll a little bit. The twenty percent that Jesse mentioned, it just has a nice little feel to it. I conform all my clips before I bring them into the editor. I never let the editor make any adjustments at all. If I'm going to do a 2398 uh, thing, I, I convert everything to 2398 before I go in or 2997. I do that all, all that process before. Um, and it takes a little bit of time at the front end, but there are so many wonky things that happen through the, through the edit process. I have everything is Apple ProRes, typically whatever I'm going to deliver in. Uh, so it's usually HQ is usually where the kind of the in-between. But I, I conform everything to exactly the same format all the way through, all the time. And I can tell you when we haven't done that, when I've allowed it to be some other way or I haven't done it that way, I paid the price almost 100% of the time that there's been, it's a slower render, it's a slower update, we get crashes on the render, not that I'm bitter, um, and, um, you know, and all kinds of other things uh, that, that may work in the timeline, but what, we've had issues where we bring MP4s in, they work in the timeline, and then they crash the render on the way out. Um, these are all things that, you know, that doesn't happen when you conform. Um, yeah, go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, totally agree with what Alex said there. And in addition to that, if you are collaborating with uh, other houses or like your, your ha if you have to send your timeline to VFX, if you have to send your timeline to color, to sound, um, having mixed frame rates uh, just adds more work and headache down the line. And again, with those complications that Alex mentioned. So if only a, a small subset of your clips are in a different frame rate from the time, time base, um, conform them first. Good, Courtney. One thing you didn't mention is whether it's uh, a broadcast clip at 2997, which could contain interlaced footage in it, which in which case you'd want to perform a, uh, a de-interlace or an inverse telecine to get it back to an original 24 if it's a theatrical feature that's been a clip, let's say, from a theatrical feature that you've pulled off a DVD or something. It'll be interlaced, so you want to de-interlace it before you move it into a progressive 2397 timeline. And... Um... 
the best way to deinterlace it is to run it through. I mean, you, you want to run it, run it through something that has a good scaler. And, and a lot of times we will pass a dinner, de, uh, interlace through a Terranex and, an, and then out. It may seem like an extra job, but unless it depends on how you know your encoder or your, or your compressor is going to handle it. The proper way to handle it now is to throw one field away and scale the other field. So if you see any kind of roughness along the edges of a, of a, a deinterlaced conversion, it means that they're trying to interpolate those to get all they can, quote unquote, out. But the reality is, is that a big company in the South Bay realized that it was actually, it got, they had gotten to the point where their um, scaler was better than the deinterlacer, and you could just throw one field away and then scale the other field up. Um, that's the proper way to do it. Um, and so if you see any kind of jagged edges on a deinterlace, it should look, it might look a little softer than, than you would expect from 1080p, let's say, but you don't want to see any jaggies at all. Like anything rough on it means that they're not scaling it properly and you should never use that. Whatever that is that you're using conversion, don't use that again. <laughs> Next question. Georgie Bortnick in Swissvale, New Hampshire says, how do we find and get the perpetual license for the Stream Deck on mobile for iPad and phone that Jeffrey was promoting the other day? I don't see the option for the paid upgrade in the store. Go ahead, Jeffrey. I'm glad you asked that question again. I, I was watching yesterday and I was like, ah, FOMO for not being on the show to be able to answer the question. So basically what it is, is if you have an iPhone, if you have an iPad, you can uh, download the 2.0 version of Stream Deck. If you have an earlier phone or iPad that cannot uh, download 2.0, you won't be able to get this. But then once you, once you do, all you have to do is go in and it's going to say, do you want to do monthly? Do you want to do yearly? It should have the lifetime. We checked yesterday and it, uh, I looked on the App Store. It's still promoted as a lifetime. So if you do not see that there... I would highly suggest uh, contacting Elgato and ask them, how do I get the lifetime from there? But it's been a great little thing. You can do up to 80 buttons on this thing. It's just amazing. There are some connection issues every now and then. And of course, if you have an Android, you can't get that just yet because they haven't updated it to the 2.0 software. Next question. Next one comes to us from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. Yeah, I know Alex loves URLs in advance, but thoughts about this and people that know about Koitman, K-U-T-I-M-A-N, and what he does. Can we get him on office hours and a link there? Uh, we would need more time. I, I, I kind of skipped through this video and I didn't really know what I was looking at. <laughs> so, so anyway, so give us more time. Maybe post this again uh, much earlier than the show and or before the show so we get a little time to, to actually watch the video. But skipping through it, I didn't, didn't know what to do with that. Um, next question. Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware, Sony uh, has a new Cine Alta camera called the Burano, full-frame 8K that sits between the FX9 and the Venice cameras. Perhaps we'll see more at IVC, and he's got a link there. Go ahead, Jesse. Uh, it, it's it's uh, rolling shutter. Is global shutter dead now? Nope. Just harder. <laughs> Mitchell? Yeah, I wish it did have the global shutter, but for the most part... It's uh, a camera that you can use for 25000 that can cut against the Venice 2, which is a $100,000 plus camera. Um, looks very interesting, and I'm very curious what Sony has in mind. They seem to be expanding the low end and the upper end of their product line right now and doing a good job of it. Every, every, I think in Sony, it's a, every, uh, every job has a different camera. You get a camera. You get a camera. Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, body-wise, it seems like it's uh, very very similar in form factor to the FX9. Um, from the sound side of things, um, it seems like we have lost, compared to the Venice and the Venice 2, it seems like we have lost a 5-pin XLR 
and also the AES input. Um, so I guess that's understandable with a smaller form, slightly smaller form factor. Um, but I'm I'm glad that uh, their Sony is still using uh, standard connectors for both for audio for Genlock and for timecode. Ari has gone away from standard connectors in 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 that uh, realm, and also well, Red forever has always. Uh, hey, new camera, new connector. Spend hundreds of dollars on new cables. Well, and and if you're you're doing dual sound, it, you know, I think it's it's oftentimes we're just putting audio. I mean, for those types of cameras, we're oftentimes doing dual sound. I don't, I very rarely depend on a camera to give me show audio. You know, like so, I think that that's the. I think for me, when I look at those cameras, you know, I, I look at I need to have some way to input audio into it for reference. But um, do you use the 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 audio recorded to the camera very often, Mickey? Uh, there are some productions that uh, would like to have the um, the guide track uh, embedded into the camera recording itself. But uh, for a small form factor like this, I could see a lot of even ENG productions using this camera because of the smaller form factor. Um, and those definitely want a mix track on the camera and time code, of course, is essential as well. I guess my question is, is for a small form factor, I, I'm very curious about where this camera fits into the pipeline because, I mean, I've, I use a fair number. I mean, we've, we use Venice's for a fair number of things that I work on. Um, and uh, the, but for me, there's like the Venice. And then if I start going in Venice 2 specifically, but if I start going down below that, I immediately just drop to the FX6. You know, like, like it's, you know, like it's just FX6, FR7 and the stuff in between. I'm not, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I'm very curious as to what, given that the creator, which is coming out at the end of September, was all shot on an FX3. Um, the uh, you know, it's it's an interesting puzzle as to you know where this camera you know fits into that into that model between the two. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how successful it is. Go ahead, Courtney. I didn't look at the lens mount. I think it takes PL lenses, doesn't it? Uh, professional Sony lenses. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think they're aiming this at the documentary film market, the people that used to shoot on 16 millimeter or, or handheld 35 millimeter uh, for the handheld market for shooting docs. Uh, it's a little more easy to manage and uh, less having to build out of Venice into a documentary package that weighs a lot that has 17,000 things glommed onto the side of it. You know? I know. I just, if I was going to shoot a documentary though, I'd, I still feel like I would shoot it with an FX6 if I was if I was in, if I was shooting a documentary with a Sony. I feel like I would still I'd still be doing an FX6. It's just much more. It's a smaller form factor, easier to manage. Um, it's, it's, it, you know, for and for the price, you have a second or third camera as well. Yeah, Code Mitchell. Um, I agree with Courtney. By the way, uh, to answer your question, PL and E mount, um, which is interesting, mm -hmm. uh, must have some kind of a mechanism to allow that sort of like the Venice does. And uh, the other thing is, uh, it, as a documentary camera, I agree. I think it's a great, uh, a great fit. And the form factor, Alex, if you if you put a FX six nine and a Venice next to each other, the six and the nine and the uh, the new um, burrito, as John calls it, uh, would fit right in there. So, yeah, it's stuck with that name forever. Uh, the other thing is, it has a uh, scratch uh, mic next to where the uh, uh, the camera operator has their mouth. So that'll be handy. Yeah, the the um, by the way, changing those lens mounts are not hard. You know, with the Black Magic cameras we have, we have shims for you know shims and, and things. It takes about ten minutes to change from one mount to the other. Go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, um, I, I have to agree with the um, with the doc documentary use case of it um, for because like if if you think about it, if if you look at the the price point, if you uh, spread out because 
documentaries typically shoot for long periods of time. I've, I've shot documentaries that have been shot over the course of five years. Um, and if you, and with a lot of documentaries tend to just buy, outright buy the camera instead of rent it. When when you amortize that over five years or how many, however many years you expect this asset to um, to to uh, be uh, to be useful, then that difference in price of well, ten thousand dollars or twenty, I don't know how much the FX six is, um, is 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 pretty much ne- negligible. And if you do use it uh, on a rental basis. It's a couple hundred US dollars difference, so it's not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. And a quick reminder that, of course, you can uh, ask questions throughout it. You can use the QR code uh, that we'll post here in just a second, or you can also just go ahead into Makana and ask your questions. Uh, first hour is general discussion, and second hour is this ambisonic pipeline that we're working on um, within uh, events. And so we'll talk about that a little bit with uh, Mickey here in a couple minutes. Uh, so if you have questions of either one of those, go ahead and throw those in. And of course, remember to vote on the questions. Uh, your vote matters. It tells us when you want us to answer them. So uh, go ahead and throw those in right now. And let's go to the next question. Next one comes to us from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. What else will you do with the new iPhone 15 virtual silent button on the side? Jesse? I'm assuming this is about the action button. Uh, It's going to be a shutter button. Jeff? Yeah, uh, I I put this in here because, uh, believe it or not, I'm thrilled about this. That that last physical button that was essentially the mute, turn off ringers and, and alerts and things like that, was that last physical button that I could not script, I could not automate it. And now I can. So even if I just stick to that function, it's great because, for instance, uh, my on-air script that does a whole host of things on my computer and phone, all with one button, can now make sure that my phone is muted for alarms, alerts. I, I currently do that by changing focus modes and having that populate to the phone. But this is great. In addition to contextual things you'll be able to do um, with shortcut scripting, because that one button can fire off a shortcut or a script that can determine what you want it to do based on conditional logic and and a whole host. I mean, you know, anything that shortcuts can do, it can talk to outside stuff. It can take a picture and automatically upload it. I mean, um, uh, I'm ready to try a whole bunch of things. I can't wait. Good, Chris. First of all, the volume button, Jesse, is already a shutter button. You can hit either one of the volume up or down and and take a picture. So there's already that. I I I wonder if this change in the hardware would happen if Steve was still alive. I'd love to know the origin of the one button that is not electronic. That this you just flick this thing because I have a feeling that that was probably like you know, Steve Jobs, like being completely, you know, ballistic when somebody's phone would make noise in a meeting saying there's got to be a way to turn turn it off immediately without getting into it, any menus. I, I find it strange. I, I just wonder, would, would that happen? That being said, the fact that it can be customized, it's super interesting. But, you know, we already have other customizable things. Like, like does anybody use the thing where you, if you tap the back of your phone a couple of times that it it'll initiate something? I don't know how much people really take advantage of some of those deeper features. It'll be interesting to see how they get gets used. Too many false positives on that, by the way, but that's why. Go ahead, Bill. 
Once upon a time, back in my, I think, late 30s, early 40s, I was so busy that I ended up carrying a micro recorder around with me and I would do audio notes to myself all day long. So I literally didn't have time to find a pen to do that. I'm tempted in seeing the presentation yesterday to come up with a shortcut that will allow me to take a voice memo and specifically log it into a to be transcribed or to be thought about later thing to just go back to that. I used to really enjoy that because I could just toss off a note and go on in the middle of a shoot or anywhere else. So I may try try that, try to bring back an, an oldie but goodie for me. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Or Jeff, I'm sorry, Jeff. Uh, by the way, uh, that is already doable, not with that button, but uh, that shortcut can be created. I can help you with that, by the way, if you want. And there is actually even a native record audio function, and then you can script what you want to do to it. I should also make clear, all of these things are doable by Siri command, for example. You don't even have to go into any menus. You can fire any of these shortcuts off now, and I have a whole host of them that I fire off with um, uh, saying, you know, Siri command. So to Chris's point, this, the difference is, this is a button that you could use perhaps during a meeting or somewhere where you don't want to be barking out commands to your phone. Um, why, by the way, is not to cater to my bizarre scripting obsession. It's simply a physical button is a point of failure, hardware failure. It breaks, dust gets in it. It's not as easy to waterproof it. Um, so making it a virtual button, that's, I'm sure, is the primary goal. You're recording. Uh, yeah, if I were, I had it to program, I'd program it that if you hold it down for three seconds, it would open a little motorized door in the bottom revealing the concealed headphone jack. It's still in there. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. The non-U.S. models of the iPhone 15 support both nano SIMs and eSIMs. Considering the convenience of eSIMs, why is Apple holding on to nano SIMs? Go ahead, Jeffrey. I don't think it's Apple's choice to hold on to, to nano, uh, nano SIMs because uh, there's a lot of uh, advantages to having an eSIM over a nano SIM. The, the first thing is that you can you don't have to reserve that sp specific spot for a nano SIM, uh, so you can put it anywhere in the phone. An eSIM, the iPhone 15 apparently can connect up to eight eSIMs into the phone. That's the uh, that's the rumor. So you could put that anywhere in the phone. You could close up the phone so it's even more uh, waterproof, watertight, and uh, be able to uh, uh, control it from there. I really think it's just uh, it's just the carriers and what their technologies are inside. Because the the countries uh, UK, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Netherlands, Sweden, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, China, Singapore, Turkey are the ones that are are you can get the uh, nano SIM on, and they're highly recommending if you travel to those companies, you should buy your phone in those countries so you can get the nano SIM. But other than that, you might not need it at all. And I have a feeling in the next couple of years, the nano SIM will be a thing in the past. It's also an environmentally, not an un environmentally friendly thing to have a nano SIM inside the phone. And of course, I'll leave the rest of that to Octavia Spencer. Uh, go ahead, uh, Mickey. Yeah, I'd say um, only a very, very small subset of the countries globally um, and even uh, portions of countries globally uh, have support for eSIMs. So nano SIMs are still very important or physical SIM cards. And I personally prefer physical SIM cards because if I want to switch uh, my 
carrier over to a different phone. I don't have to configure anything or worst case, I don't have to uh, call the carrier, which I hate. Um, so I like I like physical sims. I strongly prefer physical sims. <laughs> so, so for the same reasons, when I'm traveling, I don't want to have to deal with the idea. You know, taking away the sims takes away the user's um, mobility. Uh, next question. Jeffrey Reyes in Bronx, New York for Wacom style pens. Wacom, do we, which is Wacom? It's Wacom like water. We, 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 we did talk to Wacom about it yes. and uh, got, got it from Wacom. Style, uh, so for their stylus pen, what do you guys feel is the best way to hold it? Between which fingers is the pen gripped and which finger do you use for the buttons? Oh my God, religious question. Go ahead, Jeff. Dare I venture into this, and I've been saying it wrong this whole time. <clears throat> I, I love the question, by the way. This is a Wacom. Uh, oh, how's it? Okay. Wacom. This like is, you're walking to the Wacom. store. Uh, this is a, a stylus you can use with any uh, phone, tablet. Um, this particular one is great. It's a, a very nice pen and a stylus that works great on any touch surface. Very accurate, though. But it's always been my belief how you hold it has got to be how you write. I mean, you're going to be the most precise with that. Um, so, you know, that's that's mine. But I'm shocked sometimes, you know, I see people that do this thing where it's like three, if not four fingers on the stylus or pen. And they're extremely accurate with that. I can never do that. And of course, it's got to be the thumb for the buttons. Good, Bill. The woman with the best penmanship I have ever known was in high school, and she held her writing implement between her second and third finger, and I was always astonished at it, but she had unbelievable control of the nib of her pen doing it that way. I thought about changing for about five minutes. I said, no, I'm never going to switch. Jeffrey? Uh, so with Wacom, and I think of it as Fozzie Bear, Wacom, Wacom, Wacom. Anyway, uh, so it's, it's, I always hated Where the buttons. that commercial? That, they should yeah. use that in the commercial. Like it, totally. It, it, get Fozzie out. <laughs> Wacom, Wacom, Wacom. Anyway, uh, so I, I always hated the buttons because they always got in the way. I always turned them off and then used the keyboard command for that. My brother actually writes, he, he taught himself left hand and the whole story on that I won't get into. But when he writes, his pen is got more of a... Uh, like a 15 to 20 degree angle to it. So when he when he drew on on Wacom tablets, he he also uh, disabled the buttons because they always got in the way. I write, you know, I use it as a, as regular pen, except my pinky's always down on the corner like this most of the time, or else I was overhead. I, granted, I haven't used a Wacom in a couple of years, but uh, that's how I normally uh, used it. So it's really what how, your writing style that really influences how you use the tablet. Yeah, I just use it as a pencil. The only thing I do is I, I index for my for the button. Um, I'm using the Wacom One, which only has one button, and I find the index is easier. The, but the, if I put it on my thumb, I, I find that I accidentally hit it. But sometimes when I'm angry, I just... just, just. All right, next question. <laughs> uh, Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas is up next. Was there a 200 to $300 Sony camera with autofocus? Go, Jesse. At uh, that price range, you are looking at uh, handy cams, like little tiny camcorders. The ZV-1F is $500, and I think that might be more what you're talking about than a handy cam. Go, Jeffrey. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, handy cam. Unless you want to really go for the questionable Ebays, the broken 
uh, Sony's and build a, your own little Frankenstein, you're not going to get anything under $500. Mickey? I'd say take a look at the um, secondhand market for cameras from the A6000 line, A6000, A6100, A6300. Um, there's a good number of uh, pretty affordable um, Sony's there with autofocus. If also search for uh, Santa Greg, uh, who's been on the show in the past. He has built a nice collection of secondhand um, Sony cameras from the A6000 line, and um, it's working out for him. Next question. Next question comes from Jason Robert Shaw in Sarasota, Florida. Is there a Mac software that will mirror flip a small monitor for use in a teleprompter? Rotate is already in the system settings, but how do I flip so that left is right and so forth? Go ahead, Mickey. Most uh, teleprompter software should have the uh, ability to, and I know Chris Fenwick hates the word should, um, most teleprompter uh, software ha has the ability to flip, uh, do a horizontal flip on its output, either on the, its, its primary uh, uh, window output or its secondary display output. Uh, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, right. What Mickey says that you can flip the one of the outputs on most of the Mac software out there. Magic Scroll, I think, uh, on the Mac does it. And uh, but one thing to consider is, you know, having done a lot of teleprompting stuff, if you're in a situation where you're going to multiple monitors, you want to be able to do it on each individual monitor. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, and, and I would add that had you been able to do this natively in system settings, fine. I would. If you can get by with just having software that'll do it, uh, I would opt for that versus having to put in some system level software that's going to flip your video. You're just introducing extra risk into your video chain. Um, I, and I wish I knew who recommended. I know uh, I think Alex did and a couple others have recommended this great teleprompter uh, software for the Mac. It's um, it's called Teleprompter. It's uh, Joel joallenpro.com uh it's it's from the mac app store it's got i think every feature you could possibly need uh including it can um flip as mickey said not just uh, it could flip everything or just a designated monitor it, it's a uh, it's a great app and reasonably priced next question next one comes from tommy chance in st paul minnesota who's getting a new iphone i am it's my job. <laughs> I guess uh, Bill and John and Jesse all raised their hand, uh, but you know, on Mac break, I, I pretty much have to have a new one. So, so I'll be I'll be on at five o'clock on on Friday. I'll be hitting the button really fast. Next question. Next question comes from Chester Sweeney again in Las Vegas, Nevada. Has anybody tried used or tried the DAW Nano Studio Two? It seems pretty loaded, but hasn't seemed to change much. Uh, it looks like a really interesting software. I really am not as familiar with it. I looked at it in Nano Studios. Uh, I think the real challenge on an iPad, as an iPad-only DAW, is really having it distinguish itself from GarageBand. I think it's a really hard market to move into in the iPad because GarageBand's already there and Logic's already there, and they're not very expensive. Um, Logic, of course, has a five dollar a month. GarageBand is free, so I think that that market could be really difficult to if you're doing kind of this mobile first. Um, DAW, but it looks like a pretty interesting one. You may like the interface. It's a little cleaner, um, trying to be a little less shiny, um, but I, I, I don't know what features it would have that would cleanly distinguish it. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. Given floods, earthquakes, and so forth happening regularly now, what disaster recovery strategies are our panelists and communities considering? You know, I know for myself, um, uh, it is really paying attention to uh, just 
general back, good old fashioned backups. It's a three, two, one, three, three copies of everything to, uh, two co- in two different locations and one in the cloud. Um, and so that three, two, one is, you know, for, for data, that's where I'm looking at, of course, having good insurance. We worry a lot about fires where I live. <laughs> so those are the things to think about there. Um, but that's something to kind of, uh, consider, uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, live in a flat but elevated area. Then you don't have to worry too much about uh, fires sweeping through the hills, which is a big danger here in California, uh, and uh, and floods because you're on a little higher plane. Um, but if you are in a, a floodplain or on a hill, a hilltop or a hillside, <clears throat> investigate fire insurance and flood insurance because that's the best way to cover yourself in event of a catastrophe like that. You may find yourself... Uh, you know, uh, and also take your uh, take your really valuable paperwork paperwork and make duplicates of them and place them off site in somebody else's house or in a bank vault somewhere, uh, so that you don't lose all your important paperwork that proves you own your car, your house, etc. Next, uh, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, yeah, Bill. Obviously, with what we've seen lately, there are uh, disasters from which you can recover and those which you cannot. You should be, pay as much attention as you think is good for the recoverable ones. If the dam breaks and you're in the floodplain, there's not much prep that will do anything for you. And that's just part of the reality of the world. Uh, that's not to say you shouldn't take time. You should back up and do the rest of these things. But I always look at what's in the margin, things that I can control versus things that I don't. And I try to spend little time on the things I can't. Go ahead, Chris. You know, our friend Keenan, one of his uh, proposed data stream or uh, uh, money streams is a website that he is building called uh, the, the Level-Headed Prepper. And it's a great idea because, you know, we've all heard of like, you know, the, you know, semi-crazy, you know, living, you know, mountaintop living, you know, with their own water source and everything. But there's a lot of things that you can do at, at a at a very easy entry level thing. And... um I will say, keep an eye out for that because this is all part of you know what he what he's trying to do. He's trying to give people uh, roadmaps to being like I want to. I know I'm not ready for things to go wrong, but I want to be a little ready. I want to be more ready. I want to be very ready. And and he's trying to build you know like a roadmap to like how to get to the point where you're ready for any kind of disaster. Go, Jeff. And I think there's a big distinction to make, which is uh, disaster prevention versus what the question is, which is disaster recovery. Uh, As someone who lives in Miami Beach, it is a given that disasters will happen to some extent. They happen every summer, every season. So we have to always be prepared knowing that at any given day, within a few days' notice, we could be in a situation where, at a minimum, we're out of power. So the biggest advice I would say is just plan assuming that something will happen and just map out your steps. What will you do when that happens instead of waiting? That's it. Coming up next uh, for the for the second hour, um, uh, we have uh, not, we're going to have to talk about Ambisonic. Um, and uh, so we're going to be doing that with Mickey um, and... 
sorry, I got lost a little bit there. <laughs> uh, I was trying to give some signals that weren't going through. Um, anyway, so we've got uh, tomorrow, we've got Calvin Roberts, an old friend of mine uh, that's going to be here. He's, he has been, he has done everything in this video industry. So um, he's going to be great to walk through his, uh, how he got to where he is and what he does and what he sees going forward. Friday, of course, uh, solving network challenges. Uh, and that's going to be a great way for you to figure that out. But we have IBC coming up and we're going to give you a little promo right now. European members of the Office Hours community are heading to the International Broadcast Convention in the Rye Center in Amsterdam to bring you the latest broadcast trends and technologies to Office Hours Live from the exhibition floor. Join us on the 16th of September for the latest trends in broadcasting technologies. And this year, we are especially focusing on finding solutions for your production problems. Let us know what you would like to see, what problems you need to be solved, over on officehours.global slash IBC. Welcome to the second hour, and we're going to be talking about Ambisonic, and specifically, we're going to talk about Ambisonic as it relates to uh, what we're doing with our IBC coverage, or not IBC, but I'm sorry, but NAB coverage and other coverage that we're doing here in the U.S. Uh, we hope to make it something that's international, um, but we're, uh, we're we're kind of moving through that very slowly and kind of building that up. And so we want to talk a little bit about how that works and answer your questions about it. And here's a lot of why we want to do that, is that... Um, uh, the I think that it adds a lot to the flavor. So when I sit here and watch an NFL football game or something, and I'm getting 5-1 over YouTube, and you can hear the crowd around you, and you can hear things that are popping up and down, um, you uh, it, it's a really kind of a great feel, and you feel like they're there. I actually, looking at the coverage that we did at NAB, which is up on our site, if you go back and skip the first half hour, uh, Kevin and I <laughs> did something that that that, uh, that 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 turned that upside down. But if you go into into the second half hour, uh, you'll see you'll start to hear the conference around you. And I think that we're going to keep on refining this. So I'm going to show you what we're doing. We we've gone over it a little bit um, in the past with the NAB coverage, but I really wanted to step through it so you really understand what we're doing here because I think that. Yeah, I think it's going to end up being revolutionary, and I think we're going to end up using every version of coverage that we do over over time because it's not that it it's hard in the sense that it takes some thinking, but it's not that hard. It, you know, in the past, we think of surround and five dot one as something we really have to do a really complicated pipeline, and we're really trying to simplify that pipeline and make it something that at least on the edge uh, when we're out there um, that we can. Um, uh, do it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a little bit about some of the testing, show you a little bit of what we're dealing with in the field, and then talk about the pipeline a little bit. And then I'm going to um, hand it off to Mickey. And we're going to, we actually have a little simulation to show you. So we've uh, set up an ambisonic mic in, in uh, down at the 090 offices um, so that uh, you can kind of see how the software works a little bit. So we'll give you kind of those things. As you see this, raise your hand, um, ask questions about it. I think, again, um, the concept of being able to do it, and you're going to see us start to move. We're going to start testing a lot of this, um, not this week because of IBC, but the following week, um, we're going to um, start doing the Saturdays uh, in 5.1 um, and potentially uh, in HDR as well. Uh, it may not look perfect. It may not sound perfect, but we've decided that we just have to go ahead and push forward. <laughs> so, uh, and Saturdays are going to be kind of a test day uh, for us to do that. So you'll see us asking questions, doing lots of testing in a lot of different areas. And this is going to be one of the areas that we, that we test in. So um, let's, let me take, let me show you kind of how it begins and how we tend to do it. What, what the challenge is we have to do it remotely. We're on a live view and we have to get this, um, we have to get the pipeline so that we can, 
have a relatively small rig um, in the field that is sending back the material that we need. So um, how we kind of got it tested here, uh, this is kind of a basic rig of me, you know, fiddling with this rig. Um, so what, the, here's the key here, is that um, here's our here's our ambisonic mic here. Um, now, the thing is, is that we're doing something different. Most people who talk about ambisonic, especially in a small field, they think they're just going to use the ambisonic mic and then everyone's going to talk and everything else. But you're too far away from it and everything just gets blended into the background. So we've got two handheld mics and this is all wired right now because it's how we test it. Um, two handheld mics here um, and those are going into uh, Scorpio. I think we could probably end. Uh, well, the Scorpio is important because in the field. So this does make it a little bit more expensive. And Nikki, you can correct me. I don't know how many things, how many other things I could use for a Scorpio that had enough outputs. So, um, so basically what happens here is that we've got uh, the two mics that are going in and then we've got the ambisonic. The ambisonic is, this is a first order ambisonic. So this is a uh, four mics, uh, four inputs into this, um, into, um, and we're going to, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about ambisonic in detail. Um, but I wanted to kind of show, give you, it was, it was a, it was a question about whether we do ambisonic first and then this or this first, but I want to show why we're using it and then we'll show, we'll talk more about ambisonic. But the, um, uh, anyway, so we have these, these four inputs here. The, the big advantage to this is that I need to be able to embed, um, all, you know, all six channels, uh, in back into an SDI signal to get back into the live view. So basically what happens is, is that from this, from this, uh, camera here, this goes into, and this is an audio embedder. This is a black magic audio embedder. Um, and this goes in now to get that many channels. I only have four inputs into the, into the embedder. I have to use AES. And, um, to do that, the, um, out of the re left and right channel of the Scorpio, we have AES, um, that goes in and that's four channels. You get two channels per, per um uh wire <laughs> you know uh for, for for per balanced output you get four channels of a um, two channels of aes per channel and so um so we have that and then we had that we built a i don't know if i have that right i thought i i had it really close by um it's a there is a um a, another connector there that we that we pop in um that that will give us the other two that are coming out of a service port on this scorpio the hiroshi it's Hiroshi, right? I always get it. Make, I always make it. I always want to call it a limo, but it's a Hiroshi cable that 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 is converted to uh, um, uh, to it, it outputs a couple things, but two two more AES. So these are all quarter inches, and we uh, had these cables built so that we would make be able to do this. So so anyway, so what happens is is that we have the 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 camera goes in here, we embed six channels onto here, and then we pass it into the live view. So now the live view is getting that, and the live view can handle up to. Um, up to four, uh, I'm sorry, up to eight channels on the way out. So that's how we, we pass that out to the live view. And then the live view shoots it off and uh, back to San Rafael. So that, so then we're going to get those embedded uh, into it. Now, this is kind of more of a close up to kind of give you a sense of this. Um, let me see if I can get this. Uh, let's see. And uh, this is what it looks like when we're plugging it in. One thing that um, these are, who Mickey, who makes these again? This is the uh, I had these made for me. Um, the connectors? Yeah, the connectors. Really uh, cool. Those are from Cable Techniques. Cable Techniques. I have a box of them that I, <laughs> I'm going to put together at some point. I haven't soldered for so long. I was like, oh, I got to think about it. I got to practice a couple of times before I take the expensive connectors and do it. So when we were down in... Uh, um, in LA for, um, so yeah, when we were down in LA to cover NAB, 
uh, or not NAB, but Seagraph, I had the company called the audio department or, an, or you know, that's really close to film tools, just make these for me. And they were uh, they're great. There was nice about them. Of course, these little right angles, they fit into that bag really nicely. Um, anyway, just a little side. Set. And by the way, if you're wondering why the colors, um, they are in resistor color code so that I, I don't have to look at the, I don't have to look at any of the tags. I can just look at the color and I know what channel they go into. Um, and so um, anyway, so uh, so these are our mic inputs, and then this is the ambisonic um, inputs that we that we have there. Um, and then uh, this is what the rig has to look like. Now you don't see the mic. I didn't I, for some reason I didn't take a picture with the mic up, but there's just a pole, sound pole with the mic that would normally be be here um, to pick this up. But this is why we have to we have to get it all compact here. So this is our audio. Um, this is the this, the this, this Scorpio um, that's there that has to kind of work around with Peter. Uh, Peter is a tank, by the way. He's carrying all this stuff. He's got a live view on the back and a and a uh, Scorpio in the fort in the front. Um, and so we've got all the all the cameras are actually not wired. They're coming in wired. So these are wireless cameras coming in that that's all being embedded in here and then wrapped into the into the uh, live view from behind him. Now, what happens after that um, is that uh, we you know, I'll just I'm going to draw here. So you have the live view and it's going to pass it to back into another live view receiver. So this is an LU uh, 4000. Let me make this a little thinner. Um, 4,000. There we go. And so uh, from that LU 4,000, we send that out to a, um, we have a, um, um, an FSHDR. This is an AJA FSHDR. And we don't, we do do HDR out of this as well during this. I'm not talking about that today, but that's one, what we do there. Now from the FSHDR, we need to de-embed it. So the FSHDR, we're going to grab those channels and de-embed them from the SDI signal. And then we're sending that, that via MADI to a RME. What's the model name again, uh, Mickey? Uh, it's the DigiFace Dante. The Digi DigiFace Dante. So the RME turns that into Dante. Um, and then that, so this becomes Dante. And then this comes back into the, um, this is sent via Dante into our Mac Mini. Um, so this is a Mac Mini and it's got Pro Tools and it also has uh, our 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 plugin. Mickey will talk about the software here. Um, this is then, um, this is all mixed here. And then it comes back and is re-embedded via the FSHDR. And then from the FSHDR, it's sent out to, um, uh, it is sent out to a elemental link and then off to the internet. And then, and then that is simply defined as a 5.1. So it's a relatively, I mean, for, in my world, this is a relatively uh, simple pass, you know, uh, process, but it is, um, it is something that we found I think has worked pretty well. Now, what, what I'm going to do is hand off the software aspect of this uh, to Mickey to kind of describe how we de-embed those because those, those ambisonics are not pure channels. They're not 5.1 channels. They're a field, and I, Mickey can talk about this a little bit more, and then how we remix those with the mics because remember we have what's going along here are four ambisonic and two mics, and we could do up to four mics there. Um, and passing them back in. So go ahead, Mickey, why don't you take it away and talk a little bit about how the software works. Cool, yeah. So we're doing the uh, decoding of the uh, A-format ambisonics um, uh, signal within Pro Tools. And that's primarily because what that's that was at that time a tool um, that was easy for us to uh, implement and also relatively affordable to, to uh, get in into the system. Uh, there are, of course... Um, full hardware broadcast mixing consoles uh, from the likes of Lavo, SSL, and I believe Calrec also has um, 
a native ambisonics decoding built in. But um, I've only had my hands on Lavo and also um, SSL boards that do it. Um, I'm going to uh, share with you the the Pro Tools uh, session that's doing all this uh, this uh, decoding and also mixing in of the raw uh, handheld microphone feeds. So what we have here um, is these are the, um, the the two handheld mics come in on these channels, um, and they they then uh, what what they have in terms of processing it's just basic EQ. Um, just a just a high pass filter. I didn't do any uh, fancy EQ on on this on the whole five point one test. I did not do any dynamics processing on it. It's um, pretty much in decode level, very very basic high pass low pass, and then out the door. So these uh, these channels, these handheld mics are being fed into this. Um, these mono mics are being fed into this five point one bus. Um, and then gets sent straight out back to be embedded into the SAI uh, stream. Uh, the ambisonics... And specifically, those sit in the center channel, right? When they go back yes, out. Uh, they, if I open up these uh, channels, they are only panned in the center channel. And I did not um, hard route them on, just to the center channels in case we did want to play mm -hmm. around, but dialogue dead center only, please. Thank you. Um, <laughs> well, and, and one thing that's important is that, um, you know, the center channel is really important for this, for what we're doing here. Typically what you do is you have, you know, when we think about, when, especially when we work with people who do a lot of music, they want to create what we call a phantom center by using the left and right at equal volumes um, so that you have a phantom center. By the advantage of having that center channel, it comes right down that middle area. So if someone has surround, um, they're going to hear it um, coming right down the center. It also makes a difference for a lot of the productions I work on is that they also come down the center channel of a theater. If you do a stereo in a very large space, if you're sitting in the left, it'll feel like it's weighted to the left. If you sit it to the right, it'll feel like it's weighted to the right. Um, and so it, it, by the center channel, it becomes very important to us um, as, we, as we make all of those processes um, move forward. So, uh, and the other thing is, is that now it means that we've separated um, the mics, we have a separate center channel that is, you're always going to hear nice and clear with lots of off-axis rejection um, if the mics are used properly. And um, and now we have a separate, basically attenuation control over um, how that surround feels. So we can bring that surround up and down. And those are completely different channels or different processes uh, that are going on, which allows us to really kind of, um, uh, you know, um, handcraft the how it feels to be there. Go ahead, Mickey. So yeah, um, with when it comes to, when it goes when we get to the ambisonics portion of it, if I open up this uh, folder here, um, these are the ambio channels, and uh, I'm just gonna I have a couple of zoom windows here. All right, so this is where this is the channel where um, the uh, ambio comes in. The, the one right beside it to the right to the right of it is just a duplicate and the ambisonics microphone uh goes through this plugin which is called the harpex x and now why did we pick harpex because uh for me uh i preferred harpex for this use case because it is relatively simple compared to the other plugins out there like the ones from dear vr and all that and it's been f fairly reliable 
in 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 my experience compared to say what I have on the duplicate track here. Um, this one has two plugins. This is the native Sennheiser Ambio uh, plugin, which decodes the A, A format of the Ambio uh, microphone and turns it into a B format. It could be either a Fuma or Ambix. Um, and just I just want to note as well that um, for folks watching watching this, it would be really helpful, I think, if you go back and watch um, the breakdown of ambisonic sound uh, show that we had a couple months ago that was led by Professor uh, Jeff Francis. Tons of information there and a lot of things that are mentioned here um, would be, uh, w it, it would help to have the background from that show. And it's, I'll do the whole YouTuber thing. It's linked down below. Um, uh, and also the, um, check out the episode from uh, after we did NAB, the NAB show of, that's called the, uh, how office hours did it, and that would also give you a little um, slightly deeper background on the pipeline. So you find out how ambisonics works, um, at least at the base level, and how we're getting the signal into Pro Tools. Um, so yeah, going back to this, this is the MBO plugin, um, and then once it's uh, in the B format, and we're using Ambix here as the format. Uh, that's being sent into the Rode Soundfield uh, plugin. And this is taking the B format and then uh, deriving a 5.1 output out of that B format. Um, and I'm going back to that Ambisonics uh, uh, talk from a couple months ago. Roscoe coined the term derived microphones, which is a really great way of of talking about this. Well, and, and this is a separate version than the Harpex? Yes. So Harpex is doing the job of these two separate plugins here. Harpex right. is both decoding from A format to B format, A format being the raw microphone feed, um, right. which has no timing corrections yet and also doesn't take into account the specific um, positioning of the capsules and the uh, tetrahedral configuration. Um, so it's bringing it from A format to B format, and then also deriving the 5.1 output. That's within a single plugin, as opposed to with this solution, it being two separate plugins. So um, once that is decoded, it is also the, this uh, MBO channel, or aux rather, is also then being bussed. It's, it's being bussed into this MBO 5.1 uh, aux, which is the final decoded processed 5.1 um, Ambio uh, feed. And then this Ambio feed is then also being sent to this full 5.1 mix to be mixed in with the handheld microphones. Um, so that's, that's how things are routed. Um, I'll talk quickly about what the how we have this demo set up so that we can hear sounds from coming from around. So what we have is uh, what the Alex and uh, and Kevin Hansen from 090 uh, very uh, um, uh, gracefully uh, helped us with uh, setting up is uh, a little a little test scenario here. So we have our five uh, monitor speakers here, or actually rather six. We have our left channel here. Oops, let me put a color on this. 
And we run these, when, as Mickey's working on those, <laughs> when, yeah. we, when we check these, one of the big things we check is, um, is the channels. You know, you run, you run a 5.1 and yeah. we run these channel check, what we call channel checkers. And I built the channel checkers that we use. And so I get to listen to my voice all day while we're testing stuff. It's like, all it's day. left channel, right channel, center, you know, psh, all right. which is the LFE. So go ahead, go ahead. We have the, we have our speakers here. So we have the left uh, speaker there followed by the right, uh, the center monitor there. Um, and then the LFE, the subwoofer. Oh, sorry. Subwoofer is technically not the LFE, but there's the LFE there. We have our left surround and our uh, right surround there. And then we place the Ambio mic uh, in the uh, in the center of the room and somewhat of a mixed position there. And that is what we'll be hearing in this demo, that microphone that is uh, in that room surrounded by all these speakers. So and I'll go and this back is the and Sennheiser Ambio mic that we're that we're using. Yes. So um, I I think I will just to demonstrate I will just pump some pink noise into that room. And again, this is physically happening in that room where those uh, speakers are. It's happening live right now. And I'm gonna feed a, just a little bit. I'm gonna put my headphones on so that they can hear things a little better. And. Uh, I'm going to just feed a little bit of what that ambio is capturing into the feeding just a little bit into this meeting. And then I will open up the Harpex plugin here. And uh, I'm going to open up this pink noise channel. And right now the sound is the, the pink noise is uh, panned dead center. Uh, I'll just bring up the contrast on the Harpex plugin here so that we can see a bit more of the uh, the uh, visual, visual visualization that Harpex is putting out. So I'm going to pan the, the pink noise to 100% to the left channel. And we're seeing that being picked up more towards the left. And to the right channel. And by the way, what we're monitoring here, both in the meeting and also in in uh in the broadcast is just a stereo fold down of the 5.1 mix this is no there's no binaural processing happening here i'm going to pan it to the rear here and and then now the rear left now i'll put this back dead center reset that dead, dead center and what we can see here in the harpex plugin is the energy here is somewhat uh, skewed a little to the right. This could be either because um, of the not perfect placement of the microphone. Like we did not use any laser measures or anything like that to place the microphone there and also to properly align the speakers. Um, so one thing you can do since when with ambisonics you are capturing a full spherical uh, image, uh, auditory image, you can virtually, or I guess, uh, you can uh, you can adjust where the microphone is being pointed at virtually. So we can rotate the capture of the microphone here. So I'm going to do a full 360 here, so you can see it move around. And what we're what we're seeing in the visualization is a top-down shot of the image. So the sound is staying in place in the room, but we are moving how the sound is being decoded. So we can 
align this up a bit better and more towards the center there compared to earlier. So if we take a look at the the arrow here, which is representing the pickup of the microphone, it's pointed a little bit to the right. So we're telling the plugin that straight forward is actually a little skewed to the right. Now, if I, since uh, Ambisonics is pretty much just a capture, and I'm gonna bring down the pink noise just a bit. Since Ambisonics uh, is pretty much just a capture uh, of multiple uh, derived microphones as a uh, Roscoe uh, coined it, each of the speaker outputs in the 5.1 5 realm is, um, is just a virtual micro microphone pointed in different directions. So uh, I have here, like we were we were aiming to capture uh, a football match a couple of months ago with Alex, and uh, we were toying with the idea of either having the ambisonics microphone in the bleachers that's closer to camera position, or wirelessly uh, through the use of wire a wireless system, put the ambisonic microphone in the opposite uh, side of the field. Now, if we did end up doing that. I still would have wanted the the side of the microphone that is meant to be the front to still point away from the camera, still maintain the same um, perspective. So this would have been the position of the mics um, if the ambisonics microphone was close to the camera. We see here that uh, it's still... One is still the left channel, two is the right channel. It's still a typical 5.1 capture. But if we put the ambisonics microphone in the far side, it would have been this preset that I made, just flipped around. It, assuming a perfect coincidence on those capsules, like those capsules match perfectly, we would not hear a difference. It's just our derived or virtual microphones are pointed to the opposite side. And we can fully adjust these virtual microphones to point wherever we want it to point. We can rotate that around. So I'll, this is the preset that I made up for NAB, but for Cinegear, I wanted to experiment with something different, a bit more tighter pickup on the LCR, the left, center, and right. And this is what I, I did. I just tightened it up, the left and right being 30 degrees off center, as opposed to NABB. And how are you adjusting each 45. mic? So these derived mics can be adjusted simply by dragging. And how do dragging you, uh, the, how the do you control mics. their width? So yeah, I can just open it up and I don't know if it's readable on screen, but uh, within each of these boxes, you can see the, how many degrees it's off. But, but like the back ones are a little, you know, they're a little wider than the front ones. How, how do you make that adjustment? So I can, I can make it equidistant, but if I calculate how much would be, uh, how much is spread apart. Got it. It's the, just that they're close uh, the together. I got it. Yep. Yeah. It's just that they're close together. And it's similar. Also, the the Rode Soundfield plugin has this as well. You can fully customize, adjust them. Uh, 
And this is the this is yeah. that road getting the same data, right? That you're getting in the Harpex. Yes. Yes, both of these uh, channels I have behind here are getting the same feeds from from the microphone directly. So, uh, if I go back to Harpex here, and let's uh, let's recall that the NAB one, and then I'm gonna bring that uh, pink noise that's being sent out only of the center speaker. Get that centered up again. I'm gonna pan this the pink noise to 100% left here, and I can adjust this angle so that it's uh, we're matching where the physical speaker is. And then I'll pan it 100% right. I'll also move it here. So we can see that it is not um, uh, exactly the same angle. And again, this could be the physical room. This could be the placement of the speaker or also placement of the microphone. So what I'm doing here is I'm just aligning these pickups that's being sent out to the 5.1 field. So I'll close that down. I'm going to get rid of the pink noise for now. And if ever Kevin Hansen is in that room, I'm sorry for all the noise, Kevin. Um, I don't think we were hearing the pink noise at last. Oh, yeah, I, I took it. Yeah, I took it out of the program there. And let me get something that's a bit more nicer to listen to here. So let's get um, let's get a little drum loop here. I'll bring up the drum loop that's coming through and then I'll bring up what's feeding the Zoom meeting. So what we're hearing right now is coming out of the, the physical speakers in that room and being picked up by the microphone. So you can get this, um, we can get this, um, Drum, and and, and drum to some kit. degree, it's also picking up the room itself, right? So it's not just the speakers; oh, yeah. it's you know the room is reflecting. That's so what you see of the room. Yep. And that's why we can see some activity because the left uh, the left speaker is pointed a bit towards the uh, rear right of the room, and that's why you can see some diffusion happening there in the rear right of, of the visualization. And the same deal if we point it towards the. If we send the the drum uh, overhead to the right channel, we're seeing some diffusion in the rear left. And this is one interesting uh, thing we discovered yesterday is that because this physical room, if I go back to that image, the front of the room is a lot of reflective surfaces, a lot of screens there, and the rear of the room has some absor absorptive um, material. There's a couch there. There's there's a there's some room treatment at the rear. I noticed as I was setting this up that I was hearing more reflection when I was sending sound to the rear speakers because it was bouncing off the front of the room. And uh, I, hopefully I can uh, show that visually here as well. So let me play that drum loop again. So that's uh, being panned to the front right. And I'm going to pan it to the uh, rear left. As, as you can see, there's a, a lot more diffusion happening there. There's a lot more bouncing around, a lot more energy spread out across the room compared to um, compared to the when the the sound is panned to one of the um, front speakers.
And then another um, another uh, clip I can play back is uh, you mentioned earlier, Alex, is that uh, you have a channel ID that you've uh, you've created that you hear over and over. I, I I was also hearing it over and over for some of the projects we were working on. So I decided <laughs> for office hours, um, I would create a little thing for office hours with the help of some friends. Oh, let me fade that up first. All right, play it back. This is John Prado, and this is Channel 1, left. This is TJ Asher, and this is Channel 2, right. This is Bill Davis, and this is Channel 3, center. This is Greg Kreckmeyer, Channel 5, left surround. This is Chris Fenwick, and this is Channel 6, right surround. So you sort of get a sense of how uh, this the sound that you're capturing is uh, not only not only is the sound you're capturing um, or the source of the sound being cap not only is the source of the sound being captured by the microphone, but also how that sound interacts with the room. You could hear the natural um, uh, reverb and early refre- reflection and decay of the room. Cool. Um, I think that's pretty much it. Unless there's something else you'd like me to go through. No, so, and then that converts. So basically you're now, that HarpX is now delivering that fi- that that back in. So you're basically, so you have basically a sound field. So there's a, or a, or a, a you know, field of sound that's being generated. So it's a sphere or a sphere of sound. And then you're putting mics in HarpX. You're just putting mics to point at those, at that. And can you uh, point them vertically as well as uh, horizontally? Yeah, so you can... Uh rotate the and it might be better to in terms of visualization it's e- it might be easier to do this within the sound field plugin because it's a little nicer visually yep. but this exact same thing can be done in harpex but you can right. point like say what i'm adjusting now is are the pink channels which are the left channel and the right channel channels um and i can say that this these derived microphones are uh pointed up or the center channel, or the the main focus of the uh, of the entire sound field is down, and this is where the center channel will come out of. And same right. with the rear channels. That's great. That's great. Yeah, and so the, so you can move it. You you can move those. So you're basically putting mics inside of a virtual sound sphere, you know, and pointing them at, at yes. what you want. And then, and can you do uh, seven one nine one? You know, those those. Are, and and we'll yeah. do. Could we do five one four? We're doing five one right now, but we could do five one four. So we yes. can put as many mics in as we want. Yes, uh, pretty much like uh, say with Harpex, these there's a button here that's labeled channels with a plus and minus button, and I just I can keep on adding channels, especially like if I go change output mode to say uh, speaker dome, I can just I can keep on adding channels on the output here. Although right. the channel that I have this plugin loaded into is limited, but you can keep on adding derived microphones and um, and send aim there aim it at some source and mm-hmm. send them to a uh, a distinct output. Yeah. So and then and so that's how we're and then we can use that to convert back to um, we're now sending those out as those five cha- uh, six channels um, back to the. Uh, there's not really. I mean. I guess the can the Ambio really capture something you would use in the LFE or the oh, sub? 
Well, what I've been doing for our tests is uh, I've been putting a uh, essentially a uh, low pass filter, right, and deriving all the low end information from our uh, our ambisonic microphone and sending that out to the LFE. Very very faint, and I'm going to show you here. Like these are these four uh, master faders are what I used to what or what I used for our tests to mm-hmm. individually manipulate uh the ambisonics. I'll make make it active. And essentially here I have these this master fader is controlling the front left and right. This is controlling the center. This mm-hmm. is controlling the LFE. And um and this is what's controlling the rear surrounds. And right. on all of them I have a simple high pass, low pass filter. Um and they and again except, the oh, go ahead. except for the LFE. Oh, no, that's not the LFE. The LFE does not have a low pass because we want that low end to come through. Right. Um and also the center channel has a drastic uh low pass on it as well. Uh that cuts out a lot more of the high end compared to the left and right. And this is so that we can uh, carve out some space for the dialogue that's com- coming out of the center channel and some level adjustments here as well. And, and if you go back and look at that, if you've got something that you can watch right now, I think that the 5.1 is still, uh, it's primarily supported by over, you know, over the set-top boxes. So whether you have a Google Chrome, uh, uh, Roku, or Apple TV that, that handles it, I believe that it is folding down to binaural for if you have headsets in. Um, you, you, um, in an iPhone or whatever, but I'm not a hundred percent sure of that. I know it's folding down to stereo correctly, but I'm not sure if it's, I think it's binaural, but I got to, I'll have to check the, um, my understanding is it's, uh, folding down to, to stereo. Um, I certainly haven't heard uh, from, from me watching it back. It doesn't sound like it's a binaural render of it. Right. And and so, but if you have that, you can definitely hear it in the speakers. <laughs> you know, it's definitely coming out um, as we work through that. And so, it's it is a pretty. Um, uh, again, we're it's just rolling out. You know, like it's really just something that's just starting to roll out across. Um, you know, it was I think only officially rolled out on YouTube. We've had access to five one for a little bit longer, but it was only officially rolled out to YouTube. I think in the last couple of weeks. So we should see more of that. Uh, for, from a live perspective. But if you listen to those things, um, you should be able to hear it. And I think that as 5.1 becomes more normalized and as more people have access to it, and as it, as it does work in, in binaural, uh, it really does add a lot of, a lot of flavor, um, to the, to the process. And I think that, uh, I think it's a, it's, you know, one of those things that it, this is, we're going to keep on looking at how to make it even less expensive and simpler to, to do the broadcast with. But as we figure that out, the idea is to get it to something that we're, a lot of us are using relatively often as opposed to having it be a big lift. So we're just going to keep on doing it, you know, and doing it more and more so that it becomes something that's normal for us. Um, uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, Mickey, I get excited when I can figure out how to get my Unity and pan it to one ear. And the amount of work. And the amount of work that you put into literally just this demo, just to make this demo with a live room that you're pumping sound into, it's really amazing. And I just wanted to thank you for uh, that's uh, that's Hanson and uh, and Lin- Lindsay Alex Lindsay like a yeah, they just set oh, the stuff I, up. You you turn all the knobs. Any and anybody could set a speaker up. That's not that big of a deal. You you've done an amazing job. And just the fact that you've 
put all this like brain power into all this. It's really spectacular. I just want to thank you for all the hard work that you've done and make it very public so everybody knows what a incredible mind you have. Oh, Jeff. Thank you, and go ahead, I go ahead, enjoy all of this. I go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, do you, so do you have anything that you've recorded? Like when we were looking at the tracks, I think we were just seeing some things that you had put in there, but do you have any recording that shows all the tracks that are recording? Oh, all the the multi-tracks that were tracked. Um, this is a, a copy of the session for IBC, so I have all the IBC-related rec multi-track recording tracks here. If I go to the timeline view, scroll down here. So these are the all the multi-track ISOs so we, we recorded. Let's zoom out. So these are, so in days leading up to the, sorry, this is a, no, SIGGRAPH. This is this SIGGRAPH uh, show. Days leading up to SIGGRAPH, I multi-tracked all the, all the OH Daily shows just so that to um, stress test the system, make sure it's good to go. It can handle all the signals coming in, process it, and all that. So when, the, the, when they're recorded, as far as the DAW is concerned, are these standard audio files? Forgetting oh, yes. the plugins and everything else that process them. Yes. Uh, well, in terms of the multi-track recording, uh, these multi-track recording uh, tracks... Mm -hmm. um, are n in no way, um, uh, they do not affect what is um, being processed and broadcasted out. And that's why I have, I have them in this separate the folder here, which I, um, I closed down earlier. Um, and in terms, uh, you know, and I'm thinking of post-production. The, the these raw recorded files are just standard broadcast uh, wave, wave files. Okay. So in terms of post-production editing, we would edit this um, like any other multi-track recording that we're editing. It, it's in, in post, it's when we get to then processing it and generating our final render where all the magic of what you just showed us happens. Is that right? Uh, in this use case, we, are, we were and we have been uh, using it live. So all this uh, processing right, understood. Here. And I'm talking about just in, mm -hmm. in terms of if we're doing this, uh, if the goal is recording it not live and then doing post-production. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and we'll these, be giving uh, you some opportunities to do that. So one of the things that's going to happen is uh, um, I am going to be recording Ambisonic. So I'm, I'm working on the, the new countdown clocks right now, and so I've been kind of building the pipeline for those. And the new countdown clocks are basically, I'm going to be, you're going to see an HDR frame um, with a, uh, I'm going to be capturing a light probe um, so that I can light the the letters, <laughs> the numbers uh, with the light probe um, in HDR. And then I'm going to be capturing ambisonic of a, of a location, it might be in the ocean or um, down in my backyard or whatever it is. And I'm going to, that'll be captured in ambisonic and then we'll do the conversions to, you know, for the, for the countdown clock, but I'll, I'll be making those files available so that people can, um, you know, play with them. So you have some ambisonic recordings that you can um, put into your own DAW and, um, and play with. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be, um, I'm doing my first test. I'm not going to promise anything this weekend. I'm doing some tests this weekend with it. Uh, I'm also shooting some, um, I'm testing with a stereo 180, which I may post some of those files for you as well, uh, with a with a Canon um, uh, R5C. So um, so we'll um, be putting some up those some of those files up so we can start to play with them. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. 
Well, I was just going to say, uh, to Chris's point, uh, you know, somebody has to build the race car and they have to do all the engineering and that's a ton of work. Somebody else has to drive the car and make sure everything works. And so Mickey is our Michael Schumacher. And thank you, Mickey, for doing that. I'm going to get to the questions because we're going to run out of time. Uh, go ahead. Next question. Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. Has anyone tried Austrian Audio's Ambi Creator with two OC818S's? Results or thoughts? Uh, here's a link to an interesting video of them describing it, including some good resources, too. And he's got a YouTube link there. Well, this looks really cool. I, have you seen this, Mickey? Uh, no, I have. I haven't seen the specific uh, plugin, but uh, I'm fam familiar with the Austrian audio. Uh, the microphones that uh, they're using there seem to be um, uh, multi-pattern uh, large diaphragm condensers, uh, which have a, which are able to output uh, two channels per um, per side, and how they show it in the video seem to be uh, uh, with one microphone. Uh, doing a uh, front and rear and the other microphone doing a left and right. So I'm not sure how they are able to gather height data or um, uh, the, the top of the sound field with just those two microphones. So uh, I'm curious about it. Next question. Dave Troutman of Edmonton, Canada, wonders, are we audio people going to have to learn a whole new set of terms or acronyms as this capability becomes more popular? Yes. That's why we're talking about it now. Uh, you know, I think that it's, you know, as we move forward, whether it's for broadcast uh, or what what we're, one of the reasons that we're showing this and showing the pipeline is to make it something that everybody's doing. We're going to move, we want to move this forward where it's not just big broadcast and it's not just VR, but it's something that people are adding to event coverage, to location coverage, to high school games, to, you know, like this can be something that, uh, in streams could be now that 5.1 is available in YouTube, we think that it's important for, you know, and HDR, but definitely 5.1, that we think that many people could be learning how to do this. And what I will say is that my experience of this sitting in my in my house watching it and looking at it is that as more and more people do it, uh, you know, it's going to feel flat if you're not doing it. Um, you know, and I would not, it's not going to be next week that it feels flat, but within um, a couple years, I mean, three to five years, I think, you know, it's it's worth us playing with it right now because more and more people are paying attention to it. Go ahead, Mickey. I think um, uh, learning new new terminology is um, just a fact of, you know, an ever-changing landscape, especially in the tech-related industries such as media production. But in any industry, there will always be uh, new things that pop up. You know, recently we've learned about LLMs and and uh, and um, AI. So every industry, there's always constant learning that needs to happen. And it really, I think it's also the penetration of more and more people getting a better setup at home, whether it's just sound bars or other things. Uh, I notice immediately, like in, in my, I have a seven-one system in my in my um, when I watch TV. If someone's only doing stereo, I notice it immediately. <laughs> like, like, it's like, it's like, what is going, you know, like it just, and for me, it feels cheap, you know, like as soon as I see that, you know, so it's uh, go ahead, Chris. On the other end of the spectrum, I'm watching TV on a single home pod. So Alex and I are clearly different. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Mickey, I was going to say, so the, the Ambio thing is sitting in that room and it becomes your ears into that room, which we're monitoring on the harp X and, and stuff like that. I've always wondered, do you think if you put like a, like a head, I don't know what you'd make it out of some sort of 
you know, gel or something to mimic what a head is supposed to. And you put appropriate quality mics in the ear holes of that head. Could you put that head, do you think you could put that head in a, in a, like a venue and mix a band remotely? I'll let Nikki answer that. Yeah. But yeah. There, there are a couple um, uh, microphones or um, microphone systems that already do that. Oh, one very, very popular one is the um, uh, Neumann KU100, which is a binaural microphone, which is a, is a, um, a dummy head with two microphones inside earlobes. Um, and because the ears are actually shaped like human ears, they take into account the HRTF the head uh, reflex tra transform function. And it sounds like, uh, especially if you're wearing in-ears to when you're monitoring recordings from the K100, it sounds like um, you're indeed in that space because it's the shape of the ears that tells us where the sound is originating from, especially in the uh, vertical axis. And I saw this, this was, this was when I was at the audio department uh, I think I sent Mickey this this uh, picture of someone experimenting or someone building this rig. I don't know. Uh, I don't know when it was used or how it was used, but this is um, taking this is this is not the HRTF, but these are surround um, uh, ear ears, <laughs> surround ears um, that are there. This was just sitting on one of the desks, uh, so you could put little labs into those uh, into these each one of these ears. It turns out that your ears do make a big difference in how sound occurs for you. So. That mic, especially when you're trying to create that experience, um, you know, we, you know, because and that's a whole nother thing that we talked about already uh, in the past. But but the, um, you know, using both the head and the ear shapes uh, and then that's going to help tell us both with timing and with frequency. That's how our brain calculates that. And again, Jeff Francis talked about that in the past. Every so. audio engineer I knew in the 80s had a mullet with his hair cut over his ears so he could hear better. <laughs> next question jesse mills in san francisco bay area comes up next the sennheiser ambio has a higher self noise than some other ambisonic microphones are y'all processing out that noise in any way good mickey yeah um we, we're not processing at least for the tests that we've done for these uh convention coverage uh shows uh we haven't been processing the the noise out because yes the uh capsules used in the ambio are from the if I recall correctly, someone, someone please correct me if I'm wrong. I think they, they, they're the same capsules that are used on the Sennheiser ME66, which are quite noisy capsules. Um, but we did not process the noise out because essentially what we were trying to capture in the environment was the noise of their environment. So I, I didn't deem it necessary to do so. But and if, we you're, could. if ever you're recording, like say something really quiet, like say nature, um, then you may want to look for uh, a higher quality ambisonics mic from the from the from the likes of say uh, uh, the guys that make the octo mic and and all that next question dave trauman edmonton canada up next are you able to raise the front ambience over the handheld mics elevating the ambisonic output uh, and decode where front virtual is elevated in playback and do you want to show that mickey or is that something that... I'm sure Zoom muted, Mickey. Okay. Apologies. Um, so I, I, uh, we can certainly do that. Um, 
either here within the Harpex plugin itself, if I go back to the preset that we have here, um, these are the different channels here. I can raise and lower them individually right within the plugin. Uh, or you can also go back to what I res resorted to, which is creating um, breakouts of these, of the different uh, sections of the 5.1 uh, decoded signal. And I can raise the front left and right here or lower it. I can bring up the center channel and also the LFE and also the surrounds here. Next question. Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. Again, Alex, how is testing going with the core Octomic? So I've been able to test it a little bit. The problem really has been that uh, I don't have a blimp for it. And every time I take it outside, there's a lot of wind. Um, and so I'm getting a blimp. <laughs> but but the blimp, purchasing the blimp uh, for that, I was going to try to retrofit the blimp that I have for the Ambio. There's a lot of differences and me going back and forth between the two are going to be really painful. Like I, I tore my, my Ambio blimp apart to put it, the Octa in and I was like, this is going to be a mess. So I'm never going to want to go back and forth. So I'm, I kind of left it there. I'm kind of piecing back my Ambio blimp and I'll be getting a blimp for the Octa so that I can um, uh, make that make that more efficient and I can just go back and forth between the two. Uh, so right now I, I don't have it yet because taking it outside recently has just been almost impossible. Like you get the wind, the wind noise for those things becomes a an issue pretty quickly. So, um, so that's, that's, so indoor it's working, like it, it's operational, uh, but being able to take it out and, and make it useful, I still need a couple more pieces of gear. Uh, and so uh, hopefully later this month, I'll be picking that up. Next question. Jeff Cohen's up next from Miami Beach, Florida. In this example, is there any native ambisonic functionality in Pro Tools that you're relying on or is everything happening with the plugins you demonstrated? Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, and, and that, and I, um, also want to then tie together in my brain, maybe some others, um, if you could just talk a little bit. So you are, in theory, for a live broadcast, you're going through everything we're seeing, and you're effectively using this as your live mixer, and then you're also recording all these tracks. Is that correct? Good, Mickey. Yes, uh, that, that's exactly what we're we're doing for these uh, tests. We're using Pro Tools as a live mixer um, and also using it to multi-track record. But uh, going back to your initial question, the um, yeah, Pro Tools is indeed able to natively support Ambisonics. Uh, we can see here in the screen share that um, we can it supports up to third order Ambisonics tracks here. And this is just the create a new track dialog box that natively supports up to third order ambisonics. But um, as soon as you have to do um, any encoding or decoding to and from ambisonics, um, that's when you would really need to have a third party plugin. So there are situations wherein you want to do everything in the ambisonics world. Say if you're delivering for uh uh, YouTube 360 or back then Facebook 360, or if you're de delivering for, for a video game that requires an Ambisonics deliverable, um, then you may want to work fully in the Ambisonics world. Um, so that's what you can do natively within Pro Tools itself. But as soon as you want to convert between different formats or decode between a, form, uh, a, a format um, to B format, then you would need some plugins there. Go ahead, Courtney. 
Sorry, I was muted. Um, do you? I know you are using the Scorpio for its AES-CPU output, so for the live setup, but could you use something cheaper like a Zoom F6 that supports Ambisonic and it has six inputs and that has a USB output to go into Pro Tools uh, with the Ambisonic feeds uh, and do your Ambisonic mixing in Pro Tools and then go out from there to an embedder? Uh, but you would have to have a computer in the chain to do it right. live, otherwise. You got Mickey? Yeah, that's precisely it. Um, you you would need um, a way to to get because because the reason why uh, uh, Alex resorted to using uh, Scorpio is it's a, a a relatively portable box with uh, enough preamps uh, for for what we need and also has enough AES outputs to um, embed into uh, using an SDI embedder. Um, other boxes uh, that can do it are the sound devices said 888 also has enough uh, ins and outs for it. And also uh, the Dexcom Diva also does. Or say if you're doing everything wirelessly, even the, the sound devices Nexus has AES outs. Um, those are other devices you could use. What uh, if you're going aside from Sorry. Aside from well. an embedder with Dante. So go ahead. Uh, but could you use the USB output out of a mixer that has multi-channel USB to go directly into your Pro Tools session over USB multi-channel? And the reason that we're doing it the way we're doing it here is because we're mobile. Like you can absolutely do it if, if you have a mixer. I mean, the, right. it's just you have a much, limited, much more limited number of options when it's mobile yeah. as opposed to when you can, you know, if you're doing it in a studio, we could absolutely do that. But we were trying to capture the space and going through it. That's, that's really the limiter. But you're 100% right that you could easily make it, make it work and, and do something that potentially is less expensive than, than what, what I did. Um, but that's, that's the reason we went to that. But yeah. it would involve putting a, a Pro Tools computer somewhere in the fields, which would be the problem, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know how many things process. There's another question coming up, but I don't know how many things process Ambisonic in real time in hardware. Uh, next question. Rion Smith in Trinidad, West Indies. Hi, guys. Could we do a simpler down mix of Ambisonic that still gives a more interesting sound for normal live streams uh, like YouTube stereo? Yeah, go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, uh, uh, as we mentioned earlier, the Ambisonic's outputs are just derived microphones. So if I go, if I uh, go back to the Harpex plugin, I can uh, set the output mode to be just a stereo, and I can get these two uh, derived microphones and pan them around within the the um, the sphere of audio. Next question. Next one comes up from Jeff Keithley in Texas. Why using software to mix and not a hardware mixer solution? Go ahead, Mickey. Uh, as I mentioned at the um, t earlier in the show, uh, there are uh, full uh, hardware mixing consoles that uh, are able to decode and process uh, Ambisonic sources, um, the likes of Lawo, SSL, and I think Calrec as well. Um, but uh, this is what we have had on hand, and also um, what was uh, uh, relatively affordable um, for for our for our uh, budget at that time. And and we are having discussions with CalRec to see if there's a way that we can use some of their hardware. So stay tuned for that. Uh, next question. Peter Moore, Auckland, New Zealand. With respect to Apple's spatial audio and apologies, if it's been asked in a different way, how would one go about recording spatial audio with this? 
you need you need a you need a recorder or some kind of field recorder that now the smallest one zoom makes a tiny ambisonic mic um that is uh, that you can use there's a 300 dollars mic i think that has recording internally to it um i think courtney's showing the a, a recording device but there's actually a microphone and i believe that microphone has um an sd card in it um they i think zoom makes one with an sd card so that's probably the most portable and i'm going to get one soon just to test it but it's it's a um, it's a tiny little mic microphone that you can use for that. Um, and then, but otherwise, you know, with the Ambia, we need at least, a, you know, something with, uh, you know, at least four inputs to, to grab onto that code, Mickey. Uh, yeah. Um, I just want to go back to the term spatial audio. That's a made up term by Apple. It doesn't exist. Um, the, uh, <laughs> not that he's bitter. Not that I'm bitter. Uh, but, uh, typically when you're mixing, say, um, music and surround, you would be starting off, uh, in most cases, uh, from either mono or stereo, stereo sources. Or in some occasions, you might have, like, say, if it's an orchestral recording, a uh, a surround recording setup like a Deca tree. Um, it's not quite often that you would have an ambisonics microphone, but it's also, um, it's, it's also done by some people. But typically, engineers would record the would would have their tracks originate as either mono or stereo um, individual sources. Uh, last question for the hour. Jeff Keithley of Texas gets the honor. Why use AES instead of Dante? Good, Mickey. The embedder that we had on hand uh, took uh, takes AES in, so that's why we looked for a solution that could uh, send out AES. Right. There is a, I think Sonics makes an, an, an Dante to STI in better that we might, we might use in the future or we might try to test there in the future. Um, I had some clocking issues with the Sonics uh, in the past, in, in the not too distant past, and it turned me off from using it in production. Um, and so that, that was the, um, but I have to, I didn't have enough time to de-exit. So I was like, I kind of took it out of my testing pipeline because of some, uh, some uh, irregularities that I had with clocks. Uh, go ahead, Mickey. Yeah, um, I, I don't know as well if a SonFX uh, has a, either a 6G or a 12G um, SDI, yeah. uh, Dante to SDI embedder yet. I th last time yeah. I looked was, it was just 3G, 3G, but I don't know now. Yeah, and this is what we are doing is 6G, and we are working on, um, for NAB, I'm going to try to go to, uh, we're going to try to get the, it just was a, just a processing time thing, but we're going to try to be testing the 12G. That's the AJA makes a 12G, Blackmagic makes a 6G, and the Sonifex is a 3G. Um, and so we're trying to get to a full 4K 60 um, for NAB for some of the tests. I don't know if we'll do it for the whole show, but for some of the tests we'll be doing, uh, we're trying to get to 4K 60 for that, so stay tuned. Um, but yeah, and that's why I've taken the, the Sonifex, as I said, I had some issues, we had some issues with the production with, uh, clocking that made me a little bit, um, I had to back away from it a little bit. But the other thing that for us was 3G versus 6G. That was great. Mickey, thank you so much for coming down from the mountain, the audio mountain. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and sharing some, sharing your wealth of knowledge for us uh, for, uh, you know, today. It was just amazing, amazing demo. I, I think that, uh, I you know, we both talked about the validity of whether it would go for an hour and it did. <laughs> you know, and there was a lot to show. And I think for subjects, I want to, uh, um, I, I like the idea of us kind of digging in. It's kind of uh, for subjects that we're covering here, not the basics, but the subjects we kind of, 
really make it, you know, a real demo and we kind of work through something so that we can really see the detail kind of halfway between a normal show and a lab, you know, so I think that we'll hopefully do more of these. Um, hopefully if, if people, you know, let us know uh, in, um, you know, in Discord and so on and so forth, if this was a valuable one, I, I thought it was great as far as really understanding how the process works and slowing it down a little bit. And so thanks again, Mickey, for taking so much time um, to, to work on that. Um, and thank you to the uh, panelists. Can't do this without you. And uh, we can't do it, also can't do it without the questions from all of our uh, viewers, our, our, our producers. Uh, great questions today, both in the first and the second hour. And thank you to the incredible team on the back end that is uh, programming this, managing it, uh, and actually running the show uh, on the back end. We really appreciate everybody's contribution. Uh, today, we traveled 113,000 miles. That's 182,000 kilometers. And that is 898 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. <laughs> 